Hey there, it's Shannon Ballard. Want to say a special thanks to the people who help make this independent podcast possible. My Southern Mysteries patrons, including my newest patrons, Lee from Willow Spring, North Carolina, and Sandy, Nancy, Kylie, and Lewis. They're all listening and supporting the show from mysterious locations. When you join Southern Mysteries on Patreon, you can hear ad-free episodes, the Southern Mysteries archive of more than 60 episodes, previously released bonus episodes for patrons, plus the new monthly patron-exclusive podcast, Audacious Tales of American Crime. You can sign up now and start listening at patreon.com slash southernmysteries. There are lesser-known moments in U.S. history connected to enslaved men and women who fought for their freedom in court. Elizabeth Key was at the center of one of the most important colonial cases involving slavery. Born of an enslaved woman and a white man in Virginia, Elizabeth sued for her freedom. Henrietta Wood was born enslaved. In the 1840s, she was manumitted by a Kentucky woman whose family later planned Henrietta's kidnapping, which led to Henrietta being sold to slave traders. In the 1870s, Henrietta Wood sued her kidnapper. Welcome to Southern Mysteries, exploring history and mysteries of the American South. I'm your host, Shannon Ballard. This is the story of Elizabeth Key and Henrietta Wood. Elizabeth Key played an important role in colonial Virginia history. Her pursuit of freedom and justice set in motion changes to the legal system. Laws that would help define slavery in 17th century Virginia and in the decades that followed Elizabeth Key was born in Warwick County, Virginia, in 1630. Surviving documents don't record her mother's name, but we know she was an enslaved woman who had a relationship with English planter Thomas Key. Key arrived in Virginia before 1616 and served in Virginia's colonial legislature. When Elizabeth was born, her mother's wish was that her daughter be free— but that meant Thomas Key would have to acknowledge paternity. This was critical for her child because the only way to be free of enslavement was to have her father acknowledge and then help his daughter obtain an apprenticeship that would ensure she had prospects for the future. When Elizabeth was six years old, Thomas Key was fined for fathering an illegitimate child and called to appear before a circuit court to accept the claim Elizabeth was his daughter. Key planned to return to England soon, and it was important he be present in court. Initially, Thomas Key denied the claim. He was a married man with a considerable estate to protect, but for reasons we'll never know, perhaps out of duty or possibly out of affection for Elizabeth's mother, he accepted paternity. He then took the important step of baptizing Elizabeth in the Church of England, By the time Thomas Key returned to England, Elizabeth's mother had passed away. Thomas left Elizabeth in the care of Humphrey Higginson, a trusted friend who accepted the role as Elizabeth's godfather. 
At this time in Virginia, illegitimate children had to serve a term of indenture. Thomas Key and Humphrey Higginson drafted an agreement of indenture in which Higginson agreed to the following terms. Key specified Higginson treat Elizabeth respectfully as more than a common servant. He insisted she be treated as if she was Higginson's own daughter. She would serve a term of indenture for nine years. This meant she would be free by the time she was 15 years old. Once the term of indenture ended, Higginson agreed to give Elizabeth financial support and free her to make her way in the world. Thomas Key seemed to cover every possible scenario to ensure Elizabeth's care, including an agreement with Higginson that if he chose to return to England before Elizabeth's indenture ended, Higginson was to bring Elizabeth with him and immediately allow her to have her freedom. If Higginson died, Elizabeth would immediately be freed of indenture. Humphrey Higginson agreed to all these terms, but within a year of this agreement, Thomas Key died. Higginson revealed himself to be a man of low character. He did not honor the agreement. In fact, he transferred Elizabeth's indenture to another English planter when she turned 10 years old. Elizabeth's bond of indenture was transferred to John Motram, a wealthy planter in Northumberland County, Virginia. Motram held several of what he listed in his estate as servants and slaves. By 1654, Elizabeth was 24 years old and still indentured, well beyond the nine-year term. By the summer of 1655, she passionately desired her promised freedom. Her life had changed. She had fallen in love. Elizabeth was in a relationship with William Greenstead, one of Motram's white indentured servants. Greenstead had indentured himself in England around 1650 to pay his passage to Virginia. By 1655, Elizabeth Key and William Greenstead fell in love and welcomed their son, John. They wished to marry, but as indentured servants in Virginia, their relationship was forbidden. When John Motram died later that year, lawyers settling his estate assumed Elizabeth and her son John were enslaved for life because she was a woman of African descent. Elizabeth decided to fight back. She sued the administrators of the Motram estate to gain her freedom and protect her son. Thankfully, William Greenstead had a legal background in England. With his help and the assistance of a Northumberland County clerk, Elizabeth obtained a verified copy of the agreement between Thomas Key and Humphrey Higginson. William Greenstead took depositions from individuals who verified Elizabeth's age and parentage and presented the case to the court. Elizabeth's case was based on three legal arguments. First, she was a practicing Christian. Her father had ensured she was baptized when he acknowledged paternity. Virginia law stated baptism excluded individuals from enslavement. Second, she was the daughter of a free Englishman, and at this time, the status of a child's freedom was based on their father's status. Third, she had been bound out as an indentured servant for nine years, and that term expired nearly a decade earlier. The Northumberland County jury agreed with Elizabeth Key. 
on January 20th, 1656, they decided Elizabeth should be free. But administrators of John Motram's estate appealed the verdict to the governor and the General Court of Virginia. When they heard Elizabeth's case in March 1656, the court ruled against her. The records detailing the reason the court made that decision were destroyed. But we do know at this time, legal issues were very complicated because English legal doctrines were still somewhat honored, but some new statutes had been established in Virginia. Under English common law, Thomas Key's freedom meant Elizabeth was free, born free, and English common law stated no Englishman could enslave a Christian. Elizabeth had records proving she was baptized, which is why William Greenstead continued the fight for her freedom. The General Assembly of Virginia had the authority to rule on appeals from judgments of the general court and agreed to hear Elizabeth's appeal in late March 1656. The assembly concluded the original decision by the North Cumberland County jury had been correct, ruling by the common law the child of a woman slave begotten by a free man ought to be free. The General Assembly ruled Elizabeth Key was entitled to her freedom and entitled to the Key surname, which was critical for her son and any future children. The assembly also instructed the administrators of Motram's estate to compensate Elizabeth for the years she had been held beyond the term of the original bond of indenture. She was paid what was known as the corn and clothing compensation that all indentured servants received at the end of their term. On July 21, 1656, Elizabeth Key officially secured her freedom. She and William Greenstead married the same day, ensuring that as the wife of a free Englishman, she was protected against anyone who might make a legal claim against her as a servant or slave. Elizabeth's legal battle was groundbreaking. So was her marriage to William Greenstead, because interracial marriages were rare in 17th century Virginia. Elizabeth and William secured their family's future. They would have another son and a daughter in the years after she was freed. By 1661, William Greenstead died. And later that year, Elizabeth married an Englishman named John Parse. When he died in 1687, his will detailed that Elizabeth had died years earlier. He bequeathed her sons, William and John, 500 acres of land, and her daughter inherited 300 acres along with livestock. Elizabeth's fight for freedom changed her life and secured her family's future for generations to come. Her children were landowners, and court records show that by 1685, two of her grandsons were bound out to learn a trade. This was a common practice for white children and rare for children of African descent. Her family appear in court records, serving as jurors, which meant their county court regarded them as loyal subjects of the king. Elizabeth Key's successful court case came down to perfect timing. If she had filed that lawsuit a year or two later, she may not have secured her place in the historical record as the first woman of African ancestry 
to sue and win her freedom in the colonies. Her case was settled by the end of 1656, which was just around the time the transatlantic slave trade was being embraced by the colonies. The pre-Elizabeth Key Court Case Virginia and the post-Elizabeth Key Court Case Virginia tell the story of the impact the suit had on the law. Prior to her case, just over 350 enslaved Africans were imported to Virginia. By 1661, the trade was exploding. By the turn of the century, nearly 6,000 enslaved Africans were in Virginia. That's because wealthy English planters pushed the General Assembly to change the law that allowed Elizabeth Key and her son to be free. In 1662, in direct response to Elizabeth Key's case, a Virginia statute imposed what was known as a lifetime hereditary bondage on children of women of African descent, meaning the child would be bound or free based on the status of their mother, not their father. This was a legal move to ensure children born of enslaved women would be enslaved unless her owner made an exception and freed the child. It also freed the fathers of any paternity claims, meaning there would be no support or path to freedom. The law that helped Elizabeth gain her freedom was abolished in 1667. Keep in mind, Elizabeth's status as a baptized Christian in the Church of England moved the General Assembly to rule she was free because under English common law, it was immoral to enslave a Christian. Seeing justice had been served for Elizabeth Key, other men and women who had been baptized and were enslaved or indentured beyond their terms petitioned the court for their freedom, and many were successful. This was a problem for white tobacco planters who wanted a permanent enslaved labor force. They pushed for laws that would allow them to increase the number of people they could enslave. Planters argued slaves were converting to Christianity just to gain their freedom. They proposed a new bill to the Virginia General Assembly that passed and altered the Statute of Freedom and its relation to baptism. The new law stated the conferring of baptism does not alter the condition of the person as to their bondage or freedom. Other states followed the legal precedent set in Virginia, passing laws that made enslavement a system based on heredity and race, making all people of African descent enslaved and their children enslaved from birth. This doomed hundreds of thousands of people to endure chattel slavery until the system was mostly abolished in northern states in the early 19th century and the 13th Amendment ended slavery in the South in 1865. History shows the timing of Elizabeth's case was lucky. If she had waited even a year, she may not have won. It would take 200 years for the system to change, and we'll never know a majority of the names of the enslaved who were robbed of that freedom they deserved as a direct result of laws that were passed after Elizabeth Key was freed. 
following the Civil War, the Lost Cause movement tried to erase the stories of women like Elizabeth, who used the legal system to secure their freedom. And women like Henrietta Wood, who in 1878 sued the man who kidnapped her and returned her to slavery. She asked for reparations, the making of amends for a wrong one has done. Cases for reparations could be made on economic or moral grounds. Henrietta Woods sued slave trader Zebulon Ward for $15,000 in damages for kidnapping a free person of color and selling her into slavery. Henrietta Wood was born enslaved to the Tusi family in Boone County, Kentucky, around 1816. As a teenager, she was taken from her family and sold to a merchant in Louisville and sold again to French immigrant William Serode. He took Henrietta to New Orleans, where she remained enslaved by William Serode's wife, Jane, after he abandoned his wife and returned to France in 1844. A few years after she was abandoned, Jane Serode moved to Ohio with her two children and Henrietta Wood. According to the Northwest Ordinance, slavery was not legal in Ohio. Jane Serode honored that ordinance and in 1848 accompanied Henrietta Wood to a county courthouse where she registered Henrietta as a free woman. Henrietta obtained domestic work in several homes around Cincinnati before settling into a long-term job with a woman named Rebecca Boyd. In an interview with Henrietta decades later, she referred to this time in her life as her sweet taste of liberty. If Jane Sirode's daughter and son-in-law had their way, Henrietta never would have been registered as a free woman. They were upset that Jane freed her because they viewed Henrietta as a family asset, a valuable part of their future inheritance. Jane stood by her decision and settled into life in Cincinnati, where she ran boarding houses until her death around 1852. A year later, a kidnapping conspiracy that had been considered for nearly a year was set into motion with Henrietta Wood's employer, Rebecca Boyd, enlisted in a plot to kidnap Henrietta, return her to slavery, and ensure all involved benefited financially. Jane Sirode's daughter and son-in-law, Josephine and Robert White, needed someone willing to pull off the kidnapping, plan the whole thing. In spring 1853, they hired Woodford County, Kentucky Sheriff and slaveholder Zebulon Ward. Ward lived in the same town as the Whites, a city across the Ohio River from Cincinnati called Covington. The Whites approached Ward with their proposition. If he could kidnap Henrietta, who they said was their slave, they agreed to allow Zebulon Ward to pay them $300 for the right to sell her. The Whites felt this was a fair deal. They would get the money they were owed for Henrietta, and Ward would walk away with the money for selling her. This wasn't an unusual practice in the antebellum South. Free blacks were often kidnapped from regions where slavery was illegal, only to be smuggled to the South and placed on the slave market. 
these slave catchers used the Fugitive Slave Law of 1850 as justification to carry these free men, women, and children into southern states. The law required the return of runaway slaves to their owners, and crafting fake papers was easy. Zebulon Ward hired slave trader Frank Rust to help him catch Henrietta Wood. Rust and his gang learned Henrietta was working in the home of Rebecca Boyd. They approached her and offered to pay Rebecca to join in the plan. And she agreed. On a Sunday afternoon in April of 1853, Rebecca Boyd invited Henrietta Wood to join her for a carriage ride into Kentucky. When the carriage was near Covington, it came to a stop. Zebulon Ward claimed Henrietta as his enslaved and ordered Frank Rust to take her into custody. Henrietta Ward was about six feet tall and a very strong woman. Rebecca Boyd had mentioned this to Ward's men, saying that kidnapping Henrietta wouldn't be easy, which is why Frank Rust brought along two men to help, and it took all three of them to subdue Henrietta as she fought to get away. It would be 16 years before Henrietta Wood set foot in Ohio again. Zebulon Ward ordered his men to transport Henrietta to a private prison for the enslaved, where she was held until sold. While imprisoned, abolitionists in Covington helped Henrietta Wood file a claim to regain her freedom. Her official freedom papers at a courthouse in Cincinnati had been destroyed in an 1849 fire and her kidnappers confiscated her personal copy. The Fayette County Court ruled that Henrietta was enslaved. Under the law, this meant she wasn't a person, and slaves could not sue their masters. In Cincinnati, Rebecca Boyd and Frank Rust were indicted in the criminal courts under charges of kidnapping, but both were eventually acquitted. Over the next 15 years, Henrietta Wood remained enslaved. She was sold several times and eventually ended up in the Deep South after being sold to Natchez, Mississippi cotton planter Gerard Brandon, who eventually sent Henrietta to Texas to work in fields on his plantations. And as Henrietta Wood would later describe her enslavement on his plantations, she worked under the meanest overseers and got flogged and flogged until she thought she should die. At some point during her enslavements on Brandon's plantations, Henrietta Wood gave birth to her son, Arthur. She remained enslaved in Texas after the ratification of the 13th Amendment in 1865. She wasn't freed until 1867. Slowly, she traveled back to Ohio, stopping and working in several towns along the way in an effort to find long-lost family and friends. When she returned to Cincinnati in 1869, she was about 50 years old and as determined as ever to literally make the man who kidnapped her pay. During the 15 years Henrietta Wood was enslaved, Zebulon Ward climbed the political ladder in Kentucky. He leased and sold enslaved men, women, and children, which led to great wealth for Ward. 
By the time Henrietta returned to Ohio, he was living in Lexington and had transitioned to leasing prisoners in Arkansas and Tennessee. In 1870, Henrietta found a lawyer willing to help her file suit against Zebulon Ward. Harvey Myers knew that based on constitutional amendments that abolished slavery and guaranteed citizenship to ex-slaves, he could file the lawsuit in Cincinnati and Henrietta Wood would be able to pursue Zebulon Ward in federal court. Harvey Myers filed that suit on behalf of Henrietta Wood, seeking $15,000 in damages and lost wages for Ward's kidnapping her as a free woman and selling her as his enslaved property. Ward's lawyers claimed the alleged crimes had happened too long ago to stand up in court, and they kept stalling for years. Her case would be tied up in circuit court for eight years, as she continued to work in domestic service. She also had to deal with the loss of her lawyer. In 1874, Harvey Myers was murdered by the husband of one of his clients who was seeking a divorce. The Lincoln, Smith, and Stevens law firm agreed to take Henrietta's case. And in April 1878, she took the stand in a federal courtroom to share her story with a jury. Her son, Arthur, was sitting in the court as she testified about her manumission in 1848 and the joy of freedom turning into the horror of kidnapping and enslavement just five years later. The case was followed in national news because this was the largest reparations case for enslavement ever filed in U.S. court. On April 17, 1878, the all-white jury delivered the verdict, saying, We, the jury, in the above-entitled cause, do find for the plaintiff and assess her damages in the premises at $2,500. The equivalent amount today would be about $65,000. Zebulon Ward's attorneys immediately appealed the decision, while Henrietta Wood's attorneys attempted an appeal to petition for a larger judgment for damages. Some newspapers supported Henrietta Wood's legal battle with one writing of the award, it is not a liberal equivalent for the loss of liberty she had suffered, but it would be applicable to a great many cases yet untried. The judge in Henrietta's case had instructed the jury against an excessive award, saying that many former slaveholders already regretted slavery, which was a false claim. Wood's lawyers tried but were unable to take their appeal to a higher court. In the end, Henrietta Wood and her lawyers agreed it was time to move on. Explaining the case was about more than money. Her lawsuit and verdict gave Henrietta what she wanted more than anything else, public acknowledgement from an all-white jury that slavery itself was evil. Zebulon Ward's $2,500 reparations payment to Henrietta Wood remains the largest known sum ever granted by a U.S. court in restitution for slavery. Southern Mysteries is created and hosted by me, Shannon Ballard. 
You know, many would argue the payment to Henrietta Wood was too small, considering what she endured, which is true. But that $2,500 helped bring about generational change for Henrietta and her son, Arthur. The money allowed her to move to Chicago, and she used part of the compensation fund to help Arthur buy a home, which changed his life. He started a family, was able to pay his way through college. In 1889, Arthur Wood was one of the first African-American graduates of what became Northwestern University's School of Law. When Henrietta Wood died in Chicago in 1912, she died at peace, knowing she had fought for herself and secured her family's future. And Arthur Wood had a long career as a lawyer. When he passed away in 1951, he was proud of his children and grandchildren who had been able to attend college and have professional careers that other black families were denied at this time. Arthur Wood always said the reparations his mom demanded for her enslavement made a long-lasting difference for their family. You can read more about the Wood family story in Sweet Taste of Liberty by Caleb McDaniel and more about Elizabeth Key's legal case in Tanya Banks' As If She Were Free. You can check the show notes for links to these works and all of the sources for this episode at southernmysteries.com. Thanks so much for listening. Oh, 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 oh